Hey everyone, it's Tom Kradza, and on this episode of the Your Life, Your Terms show, I sit down with Lynn Alden to talk everything global macroeconomics. If you don't know her, she's probably one of the best macroeconomic analysts that we've come across. She has a website, lynnalden.com, and just the top three articles alone here are awesome. I'm just reading them off. Depending on when you listen to this, they may change, of course, but the top one is, what is money anyway? This thing is like 20,000 words on the definition of money, and if you're a a geek like me, you love this stuff. So it's a great article. The next one is how debt jubilees work. And the next one is does the national debt matter? So the topics she discusses are very timely. Even if you don't get into global macroeconomics, I think it's important to pay attention to this at some level, because with everything going on in the world right now, you need some context for yourself in order to give meaning to what is happening here with inflation. And like, for example, why is inflation so high? But yet the Bank of Canada is only raising interest rates 0.25% when inflation is at the highest level it's been at in 30 years. Why is this all happening? And I think studying global macroeconomics gives you clues and insights and perspective into all of that that ultimately brings you some peace of mind in your decision making around your own money and finances for yourself and your family. So love sitting down with Lynn and getting her thoughts. We talk all the uh, things about the 1940 comparisons to today, what her anticipated uh, or best guesses are for the 2020s going forward with the economy. And then the last 20 minutes or so, I get into a little bit of her story in her life and how she came to do what she's doing now, which I think you'll find rather interesting. Some of it definitely surprised me. So that's it for the intro of Lynn. If you are listening to this and you want to dive into the real estate market here in the Ontario area in the greater Toronto area, you can find some of our reports at rockstarinnercircle.com forward slash reports. One of the ones I would point out specifically is our population explosion report that we've updated for 2022. That particular report pulls all the different data around housing uh, housing supply and the population growth in this particular area. Whenever economists talk about the housing in Ontario and why prices may or may not drop, they neglect our kind of the crisis that we have just around supply. And I think we try to tackle some of that in that population report. So you can get a copy of that at rockstarinnercircle.com forward slash reports. That's rockstarinnercircle.com forward slash reports. And with that, Let's get on with the show. Are you ready to live life on your terms? Is it time to take charge? Real estate, business building, the economy, health and nutrition, and more. It's the Your Life, Your Term Show with Tom and Nick Carazza. Are you ready? Let's go. Okay, we are live here with Lynn Alden, someone who I think puts together the best macroeconomic analysis that I come across. And I, I'm a geek with this stuff, Lynn. I read a lot of this stuff, but your stuff and specifically the charts that you put together with your analysis are just incredible. So I want to start with that and I'm going to dive in with one of the charts. You were the first person that I read that really zoned in on the 1940s comparison. And you have this wonderful chart where you show when a government, and in this case, the US, gets a debt to GDP that's over 100%, maybe touches 120, that in the past, if we use history as the guide, central banks will keep rates really low, often for, or in that period, for a whole decade. And that the intent with that, if I'm understanding correctly, was to 
bring the GDP down or inflate the economy. So as a percentage against the economy, the debt was less. And it looks like we're doing that again right now. Yeah, everybody learns from someone else. And so I, I originally came across analysis by Ray Dalio years and years ago. Uh, because my research was aiming at, okay, so we're, we're building more and more debt in the system. How does this end? You know, what are the different end games for this particular cycle? Not the end of history, but the end of this, you know, period of time. And uh, I found that he had the most kind of complete explanation. Uh, and so I eventually uh, looked at that thesis and then said, well, let me, um, let me dig into the numbers myself and see if I can reconstruct it and see if I can look at it from other angles, right? So, so kind of inspired by one thing and then try to add value to it. And so all of my research kept pointing in that same direction where you go through these periods of long-term debt cycles. So you build up, you know, you have the short-term credit cycle, you build up debt in the system, then you get some sort of event or some sort of, uh, say, monetary tightening cycle that kind of washes it out. You get a period of partial deleveraging, uh, but then you start building up debt again. Uh, and you, you you never go back to your baseline. Instead of a sine wave of debt that goes sideways, it's like an upward trending sine wave. And so you get higher and higher debt as a percentage of GDP and lower and lower interest rates until you hit zero interest rates or even slightly negative, and you get extraordinarily high debt levels. And historically in history, when you hit that sort of uh, period, you get basically currency devaluation, de uh, debt monetization, and financial oppression, which is basically that you start to get large fiscal expenditures and they hold interest rates low. And so you get pretty high inflation, pretty high nominal GDP growth because the large inflation component uh, while they're holding debt well below the inflation rate. Uh, and so, because basically if you have 100% or 150% debt to GDP, uh, you know, if you do the math on, on interest rates, you, you can't really have structurally positive real interest rates. Uh, and so you get that period of financial oppression. And if you tie it even back to longer cycles of just kind of like debt jubilees or wealth concentration cycles that literally you can you can evidence that back thousands of years to, to ancient Greece and, you know, the, the Near East, uh, humans just go in these big cycles. And so my, my kind of research has been based on the idea that we are in one of these cycles and that most people looking at 20, 30, 40 year back tests are kind of missing the bigger picture. And I think that's starting to become more apparent, but it's, it's something that I've been focusing on for about two years now. And I think what made it even more apparent recently is now we have a kinetic war going on that you also referenced, because I remember reading your material thinking, okay, this is a lot, there's a lot of parallels here, but there was also World War II. And not that that discredited that type of analysis, but now that we actually have a shooting war going on, it's like, you know, the realization is like, holy smokes, like how similar are we to that particular era? So I guess my question for you is 10 years from now, where are we? Like forget the next year, like 10 years from today, like if I'm a Canadian sitting here in the Toronto area thinking just from my family, like where are we when it comes to stuff like currencies? Like where are we? Where is the Canadian dollar, the US dollars world, the Canadian 10 years from today? What do you see? So there's that old quote that history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes, right? So my, my point with the 1940s is not that we're going through an identical period, but that is the closest period uh, that's, that, that we should be familiar with. If, if we're basically... Things that seem shocking are less shocking in financial markets to you if you are familiar with the 1940s. You're like, oh, it's kind of like what happened there. Um, and so it's basically the, the closest template we have. And then the question becomes, how do we differ from that template? What are the differences? Because it's not, it's not identical. And one example is that back then, the United States was running structural trade surpluses. Uh, and the UK, the, the existing power at the time, was the one running structural trade deficits. And so now, in, in many ways, the United States more resembles the UK 
from the 1940s where you know they're the they're the leading power uh and they have uh you know the structural trade deficit against a rising power which back then was the united states and now is 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 china uh, and that doesn't mean that it's going to follow the same exact pattern uh there's obviously different ge geographic differences there's all sorts of differences there uh but it th there is kind of a, a semblance there and generally you know what i was seeing was i wasn't talking about kinetic war but i was talking about essentially wartime finance where back then you had very large fiscal expenditures that were monetized and it was very inflationary and it was very commodity heavy and what we were seeing in response to a pandemic hitting a highly levered system right because you know humanity's had pandemics in the past and if you don't have a lot of leverage it's not that you know it's from a, you know, it's obviously still bad from a humanitarian standpoint but from a financial standpoint it's not the end of the world but if a if if the whole system's so tightly geared and there's so much operational leverage and financial leverage that it just it can't absorb shocks, right? It could be anything. It could be a natural disaster. It could be a virus. It could be a war. If something hits a system that levered, you get these. You know, basically the system cannot let itself collapse. Credit credit cycle credit markets are based on always expanding, and that's why these these kind of recessions have gotten kind of shorter and crazier with bigger and bigger government responses, and so when it when you're kind of at the long-term debt cycle. You're already at the zero bound in terms of monetary policy, and you get a big shock to the system. You get a massive fiscal response, and so it looked like wartime finance, even though we weren't in a kinetic war with another country. We were at war with, you know, biology essentially. We were at war with just our, our, saving our levered system, and you know, I was hoping that it wouldn't turn into an actual kinetic war. But the the other the other thing I was looking at was so I I'm quantitative. I focus more on the quantitative side, but I also pay attention to the qualitative side. And so, for example, there's a book called The Fourth Turning, where they look at cycles from a, a demographic standpoint. It's a, it's you know his two historian dem demographers wrote that, and you know there's there's some aspects that seem you know you could say it's wishy washy, but it it, it becomes more interesting when you say that so. Their argument is that every roughly 80 years, you have kind of a generational crisis where, where prior institutions get torn down, new institutions get built, the social contract gets destroyed and renewed, um, and it could be good or bad. I mean, you you could you could replace a decent social contract with a worse social contract, or you could you know you could you could build something better. And what I noticed was that all of his you know quote unquote fourth turnings, his crisis standpoints coincide with long term debt cycles, right? So. Basically, in all those long-term debt cycles where you get kind of a, a big shift in monetary policy, you also have rising populism and things like that. And so it's not surprising that you get wars in those periods. And basically, those wars are kind of the, the catalyst. And you know, we were hoping – I was hoping that this period would be one without a kinetic war and that it would be purely kind of you know humans versus nature or humans versus their own leverage essentially. Uh, but now, yeah, we're throwing kinetic war into the mix, and so it's, it's unfortunately even closer. To the 1940s, uh, you know, and now I would say hopefully the war doesn't get anywhere near the scale as it was in the 1940s. But you do have a lot of you have you know you have protectionism, you have you know increasing uh, geopolitical contact after a period of relative harmony, uh, and you have a highly levered system. So in many ways, it just continues to resemble the 40s, closer than I could have imagined. There's so much to to just think about with all of that. So. Do you think with your analogy of kind of, you know, the UK and America and now America has a trade deficit, do we end up, do we enter a world 10 years from today where the US dollar is still around, but there's these other currencies, you know, how the pound was kind of the reserve, you know, what was it like a, over a hundred years ago now or a hundred years ago, 
or so? Um, do we enter a world where the US dollar is still around, but there's these other currencies that maybe we're just seeing evolve right now? Like maybe they're stable coins backed by commodities in some way. And instead of having another nation as a reserve currency, or even like the IMF coming in with an SDR as some sort of reserve, do we enter a world where it's like, we have these stable coins backed by commodities that are somewhat centralized. You know, I, sometimes I look at Tether's gold-backed token. I'm like, is this like a new form of reserve currency that's kind of evolving? I know these are centralized things, but could are we headed to that kind of world 10 years from now? What, 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 what would be your guess? So my base case throughout the 2020s is that we'll have higher than average inflation compared to the 2010s. Um, uh, driven by just commodity supply limitations, large fiscal spending, that that one-two punch. Uh, and then generally when you have new technologies and sovereign debt crisis, that's when you get shifts in the monetary system, right? So the, the prior shift was the 70s, the one before that was the 30s and 40s. And so I do think that we're on the verge of kind of a, a you know, another monetary transition. And, you know, to your point, one of the arguments I made is that, you know, this, this, this period is pretty unusual where you have like one fiat currency at the heart of the whole system. People assume you have to have like, you know, what is the world reserve currency going to be? And it's like, well, this was this was the anomaly, I would say that basically after World War Two, the United States was like 40 percent of global GDP. Yeah. Got and it. Yeah, whereas yeah. whereas, you know, right now it's down to 20 percent of global GDP. There's no country big enough to be the world reserve currency alone. Uh, and nor do they want to nor, nor nor is there enough geopolitical consensus and power concentration to have a hyper power that can just dictate terms. Right. So. Uh, I think we're heading in a more multipolar world, mm -hmm. which includes a multi-reserve currency world. So you can you can look at say the SDR basket. You know that's five major currencies. They're they're kind of the the reserve currencies, and the United States dollar dominates it. But I think over time it spreads out a little bit. We've already seen that mildly for 20 years. So the U.S. dollar share of global reserves hit a peak about the year 2000, and it's been in a you know kind of a sideways to mildly down trend. Uh, and I think that continues, could accelerate. Uh, and I also think there's, you know, there's going to be an increase. There's ever since around 2014, there's been an increasing shift on towards neutral reserve assets, uh, which which currently means gold. Meaning that if you look at official central bank holdings of treasuries and gold, both have gone up in dollar terms. But but gold, you know, they've been buying gold and their gold's been appreciating. Uh, and so, and we see, for example, with this recent event, that you know, treasuries were considered risk-free assets. Uh, but if now we see that if you are a country that is belligerent or a country that is, uh, you know, for whatever reason, not on good terms with the U.S. or Europe, and that can mean that can take a variety of forms. Right. So you're not right now. We're saying, OK, if you do something extreme like war, your reserves could be frozen. But in the future, you have to say, OK, what are what, what would future politicians do with reserves? Right. Could we could we freeze the reserves based on trade disputes? Could we could we trade? Could we freeze them based on commodity disputes in, in a truly scarce world of commodities? And so. Countries are saying, okay, well, so if my reserves can be frozen, they're not risk-free, and they're already yielding below the inflation rate, as we just discussed. They're they're being financially oppressed. They're just melting ice cubes. So, what other assets can I put reserves into? So, one option is you could you could go into a couple different currencies. So, Russia, for example, had their dollars and euros frozen, uh, but their yuan and their gold is still fine, right? So, you can do that, uh, and then two, you can get into gold, and gold is really the only commodity market big enough to be like a long-term store of value it's even then it's not really big enough it's you know if you do the math on what it would take for china to go to an official and now 
some estimates think that China has more gold than they say, but let's just take them at their face value. And they say, okay, they want to get up to a 20% weighting of gold reserves as a percentage of total FX reserves like Russia has. Uh, what would it take? Well, the gold market's not really big enough to absorb that flow without a big price increase. And that's just China. What if what if every country wants to go, you know, in whatever allocation they have to gold, they want to increase it by 20%. Um, you know, this is not a big enough market. And then you can look at things like Bitcoin and you say, okay, there's a, there's a neutral reserve asset. There's a payment channel that's, you know, relatively permissionless. Uh, that obviously has interesting geopolitical locations as a, a, you know, kind of a reserve asset, but it's a less than trillion dollar asset right now. It's not big enough to absorb that. So I think as we look out further, we are looking more digital. Uh, gold is important now. Uh, I think part of it is having it in your own jurisdiction. So no stable coins, no paper claims, but just having it in your own country vaults is, is, is important. But for people and for other institutions, I do think that you know, we do have a variety of gold-backed stable coins. I think you can have other commodity-backed stable coins. They're interesting. Obviously, you have fiat-backed stable coins. And then you have bare assets themselves, like Bitcoin. And I think that there's going to be kind of a transition over time. And my general approach is to focus on scarce assets. So I like gold. I like Bitcoin. I like, uh, you know, appropriately priced real estate. I like appropriately priced equities, commodities, things like that. Um, and I do think that we're going into a world where reserve practices are more diversified and perhaps more focused on scarce assets and even things like just higher commodity inventory, strategic commodity reserves, things like that. Could something like Bitcoin, you know, I'm obviously a, a lover of Bitcoin. <laughs> so could something like Bitcoin get big enough just by force? Like do another, you know, when you hear Greg Foss talk about, hey, there's 200 trillion, 300 trillion in bonds and credit debt. And if a lot, if some of that money just comes into a world of, Bitcoin, can it just be forced to be big enough? Over time, just, yeah. Over time. So it, it couldn't be something that happens in 24 months. Well, I would, so I would say we're in the process of testing Bitcoin's hardness. So if we go back to gold for a second, right? I mean, you know, if there's 200 trillion in, in bonds and cash, there's something like 12 trillion in gold, right? So if you were to pour some of that big cup into that smaller cup, gold would have to be much bigger to absorb it. And, you know, in the 70s, you had crazy shocks. Like you had gold go from 35 an ounce pegged up to hundreds in a, in a very short period of time. And then it, you know, eventually reached a bubble and then it stabilized. And then it kind of went this long period where the treasury was, was the reserve of the system. That started, like we said, that kind of peaked in 2000, which is also roughly when gold bottomed. That's that like the UK sold part of their gold at the bottom of their official gold, gold reserves. Mm. Then we just, you know, we had this like decade of almost straight up in gold, right? So, so you can have things like where decades happen in a year. And then for decades, nothing happens, right? So I, I do think that you have these periods of time. You know that quote, like uh, there, there are weeks where decades happen and decades where nothing happens or decades where weeks happen. I think you, you, gold and these kind of monetary shifts happen like that, where you know these markets can get big enough uh, if the other, the much larger asset becomes far less desirable and just money has to keep pouring into those, those, those new assets. And so bringing it back to Bitcoin, I think, I think it's, you know, we're seeing it's, it's monetizing over time. Right now, it's a 13-year-old asset, right? So, you know, we can't just put a trillion dollars into it and say, okay, well, that this is our hardest asset ever. It's our sovereign reserve. This is where we're putting decades of accumulated trade surpluses. We, we're betting the the future of our citizens' like financial lives on this asset. Yeah, yeah. So I want that. I want that. But what you're saying makes sense. But yes, yeah, I hear you. So, I hear so, you. so we can barely do that with gold, right? So, so gold is already like you know, gold's 
historically been the safest asset you can imagine. But now this question is like, could be could gold be demonetized by Bitcoin, right? So there's nothing that's risk free, right? But gold has you know it's got this longest history. It's got it, it's you know this super stable stock to flow ratio, closest thing we have to perfect money. And so they have that. Even that market's not big enough. And so as we're seeing Bitcoin monetize and we're testing its hardness in various ways, we're seeing, okay, what, what, how does it respond to uh, differences in, in hard forks? How does it respond to a uh, thousand altcoins trying to basically denial, you know, kind of like denial of service it or just like a distributed attack on it? You know, if, can, we, can we dilute it with altcoins? Then we're seeing, okay, what if we, uh, you know, what if some countries try to ban it? Another one. So we're kind of going through a process of seeing how hard it is. Right. So the longer it goes, the more benefits from the Lindy effect. Uh, and, you know, it also reaches a higher adoption. So it can, it can kind of slow down its volatility over time. And, it be, you know, if it becomes a multi trillion dollar asset and then it's been around for 20 years, that gets more interesting. Right. So I think over time, Bitcoin can become big enough if it continues to show that it's hard enough uh, and that it's that it's, you know, sturdy enough to support that kind of capital. I think in the meantime, gold is 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 kind of the. The, the present option the central banks have they can you know they could drive the size of that market up by 50% or 100% in a pretty short period of time uh, and then bitcoin has to get multiples bigger in order to kind of serve a similar role and i guess another thing to that point would be when you see that volcano bond which i don't know if it's going to be issued or not but from el salvador this is another thing that's testing bitcoin perhaps can a country maybe get out of the thumb of the imf and issue their own kind of bonds instead of borrowing constantly from the IMF and through that create another financial asset where Bitcoin's kind of proven itself again? I think is that's that a big, okay. I think that's a big test. I mean, one thing that blockchains do is they kind of decentralize uh, uh, finance, right? So for example, stable coins make it so that people can send international payments peer to peer without going through central bank, you know, them sending money to each other, right? Just peer to peer over the internet. And the same thing's true for Bitcoin. And then the same thing's true for countries that want to raise finance. They can raise finance from hedge funds and, and individuals over the liquid network, for example. And I do think that's a test to see how it turns out. Because right now, one of the, one of El Salvador's biggest risks is that their sovereign bond yields are blowing out. Uh, the, you know, the, they've been down, their, their, credit, their bond market's been downgraded by rating agencies. There's not a lot of appetite from foreign official channels to, to buy their bonds at the moment. And so they have somewhat of a long-term refinancing risk here. And so we'll see how, how they're able to shift the type of market that's interested in them. Um, okay, so what about this thought? What about asset confiscation by governments by the end of this decade? Do we get to a point where governments get broke? Country like Canada is saying, hey, listen, we're broke. Um, and we're going to confiscate some assets. And the reason I bring that up is someone who I think is really level-headed with this type of thinking is Jeff Booth. And in talking to him a few times at the end, he'll sometimes allude to, and I want to talk to him about this further, about asset confiscation, that we're kind of on that path that perhaps this is a real thing. And in Canada this year, which I'm sure you've heard, some citizens had bank accounts frozen for over you know, a $50 donation to a protest, and they had their bank accounts frozen over that. And that really kind of propelled my thinking forward, thinking, holy smokes, if governments get desperate enough, now we see what's happening with Russia's reserves, but we're seeing some citizens get bank accounts frozen over $50, maybe this idea of asset confiscation by governments 10 years from now isn't as you know, out there as I once thought. What comes to mind when I say that to you? So I, that, that is, that, I mean, that was a risk throughout the 30s and 40s 
uh, and it's a risk again. It, it, when you have major transitions, there are risks like that. And it, you know, generally, they will try to disguise it, right? So, for example, another to add to your list of examples, we're seeing now. So, ener energy companies had a terrible twelve years, you know, ten to fifteen years of returns. They, you know, there there are energy stocks that are cheaper than they were in like two thousand seven, you know, fifteen years later. Uh, they went through periods where they had negative earnings. They had to write down losses. Now they're in a period where they're actually earning quite a bit of money. And some countries are coming in and say they're gouging prices. We have to do windfall taxes. We have to, you know, now that now that they're actually having a good yeah. couple yeah. years, we have to do windfall uh, taxes. So that, that's another example where, you know, you can have kind of changing the rules or uh, narratives uh, shifting around how to provision the government government more. Right. And it could be, let's say, let's say Bitcoin goes up 5x. It's like, well, all these rich Bitcoiners, let's do a windfall tax on the Bitcoiners. Or gold went up so dramatically, let's do an extra windfall tax on gold. Or, uh, or real even, estate in Canada. Real estate real, in Canada real, is one real, of those things. Yeah. Exactly. Real estate in Canada. Or just, hey, like, look, wealth concentration has never been wider. We're going to do a windfall tax. So there's all sorts of things that can happen in these environments. Right. And, and, you know, they're ones that could make sense, right? I mean, they got through the 30s and 40s in the, in the you know the Western world pretty well, all things considered. You know, there are things that can make sense, and there are other things that are just you know out there that just you know they 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 risk um, kind of the rule of law or they risk kind of perception of the of the you know what is investable, right? So for the part of the reason that nobody wants to own Chinese stocks right now is they spent they spent a whole year just constantly changing the rules around how they're going to treat their big companies and you know now they're saying hey we want to we want to wrap up regulations we want to make uh, we want to respect property rights we want to uh, encourage international investment and you know they might come back but it's like it takes time to then build that trust again right to say okay is you know what do i own if i own chinese companies right and, and so generally one of the strengths of the the west has been that you, you have pretty strong rights when you own property throughout Europe, Canada, United States, countries like this, uh, and if you if you do threaten that, um, that can have implications for you know the ability to raise capital in the future and to get things done. So I think when you have decades of stress, like I think we're probably going through with with commodity shortages and inflation and kind of the breakdown and some fiat currencies, starting with the weaker ones and then kind of moving towards the the main ones, um, you can get pretty extreme actions and you can get kind of. Uh, rising populism on the right or the left and that can encourage kind of extreme behavior if you start to get kind of a very strong political consensus i love how factually you talk about this stuff because i sometimes freak out about it you know i'm I'll, sometimes i'll run around thinking what the heck is going on in the world and you just kind of break it down very very factually which i appreciate um so so in one of your latest articles i think you mentioned that china is now the biggest buyer of saudi oil yes what do you think china wants if they're now the biggest buyer of Saudi oil, they must have some ability to influence what the Saudis do with their oil and how they price their oil. I mean, you have great articles on the petrodollar and what the petrodollar system. Do you think they want anything? Because they would obviously be able to make some demands. I think they want to be able to buy oil in Yuan. I mean, that's one. Uh, and so going back to what we said before, you know, for most of this multi-decade period, of you know post World War II and then you know including post 1970s, the United States was by far the you know the biggest share of global GDP and the biggest commodity importer. And then over time, as we've seen the rise of China, which has four times the population, so even if they have less per capita, they're still 
bigger. Uh, you know, they have more skyscrapers. They consume more electricity. Uh, you know, in many ways, they're already bigger in terms of, say, purchasing power parity GDP. By, by kind of raw consumption, they're already bigger. They're the biggest commodity importer now. And the United States also, because we've, you know, we've developed shale, we, we've also kind of limited our exports, I mean, imports to some extent. Uh, and so China has surpassed the United States, the biggest customer of a lot of oil producing, oil exporting nations, including Saudi Arabia. And so one of the things that they can argue for over time is that we want to be able to buy oil in yuan. And so we see headlines where Saudi Arabia is considering it, right? When you, you know, it's kind of the customer's always right. If, you're, if your biggest customer asks something, you at least consider it. Um, and now that you have Russia cut off from the West, uh, they can gravitate East. And that gives China some influence to say, hey, Russia, I see you have some oil over there. We have Yuan and you can use it to buy electronics and manufacturing components and uh, you know so let's make a deal right so I do think that's part of the long-term trend towards a multi uh, you know currency world now the biggest shortcoming of the yuan is that because you have restrictive capital controls and just less property rights rule of law there's less things you can do with your yuan so so with the with the dollar all these countries get dollars and then they used to plow into treasuries and when that kind of got like a bad trade because of the low yields and and you know compared to inflation they started piling it increasingly into equities um and they also you know they they go to canada and australia and they pile it into real estate right so there's there's some markets where you know in the u.s it's stocks in certain other countries it's the real estate uh and in china foreigners have not wanted a ton of their assets right so that that's been the challenge um, but I think over time, if they can get a, a handful of key partners, it doesn't take everyone. It just takes key partners. They're already the world's biggest trade partner with the majority of countries. If they can convince them to say, okay, hey, hold a percentage of your assets and you want based assets, you know, then they, makes, they start. It makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I like the way you broke that down. So basically the last hundred years or so has been an anomaly with the U.S. dollar acting as a reserve. We're kind of going back to a world where there's lots of different currencies representing different things to different people and creating a basket as you wish. If you want your base to be Bitcoin, if you consider that something important to you, it can be add on some other things and everyone will have a different mix. That seems like the world we're headed to. Um, yeah, I think I get so. It. Yeah. Okay. What about Canada's future in their oil and gas? Do you think Canada's oil and gas industry looks a little more appealing in the next 10 to 20 years just because of geopolitics? I think so, because the, the oil sands have long reserve life. And so in a world of higher energy prices, the economics are pretty favorable there. Um, you know, partially comes down to whether you can uh, snatch defeat from the jaws of victory, right? So, you know, for a while, I've been fairly bullish on Russia, where I was like, okay, so I think we're entering a commodity bull market. They have low debt. They have, uh, you know, positive real interest rates. They have, you know, their major diversified commodity exporter. Uh, and so, but now, now that's all in question because they got very aggressive. Uh, and so, you know, Canada could do certain things that disrupts its, its future here. But I do think that among countries going forward in a, in a, in a market that I think is, you know, I don't think commodities are going to go straight up for a decade, but I think that when we look back at the end of this decade, it would have been a very bullish decade for commodities. Uh, I do think that Canada is well positioned for that. Um, and so I, I am pretty favorable on a number of Canadian assets. Uh, but, you know, I diversify it as part of a portfolio because I have to worry about jurisdictional risk. Sure. Yeah. 
Um, okay. And I know I'm switching around here a lot. I just like your thoughts on so many of these different subjects. I want to ask you about CBDCs now. Is our CBDC something you see coming into place in the next, what would be your time frame for central bank digital currencies? Canada just announced, the Bank of Canada's website just has a press release right now that they're partnering with uh, MIT, which everyone here found humorous that like our Bank of Canada is going to MIT for some tech, uh, technology expertise to make this happen. But um, do you see these coming out? And the reason I guess I'm asking you is I always just doubt the, can the government's ability to put anything together technically that w actually works. So in, in my mind, I'm like, do they just kind of grab onto this whole stablecoin thing and say, okay, stablecoins are our CBDCs. We're going to regulate it to the point where we can make it work for us and forget our own central bank digital currencies. Or do you think central bank digital currencies are really something we're going to see? So I think my my base case, and this is this is fluid, right? Because as we get more information, this can change over time. But my base case now is that we're going to see a spectrum across the world. So in China, central bank digital currencies are already here. They're just kind of been arriving over the past couple of years with testing and kind of rollouts. And so China is capable of doing it partially because they started researching it in 2014. Uh, so it, you know, it's like kind of a, a long cycle for that. It's not something you just put together in six months. Uh, and they, so as the rising power that doesn't really like the current system financially, uh, and as a country that very much likes surveillance and control, you know, they, they viewed central bank digital currencies as a natural fit. Um, in the in the West, it's more challenging, right? So so you know the ECB published a document back in 2020 talking about you know the the benefits of of CBDCs and what it can mean. It can give them more seniorage. They can basically take market share back from banks. Uh, they can uh, surveil and control more. They can do kind of more uh, deeply negative, uh, you know, below zero uh, uh, rate policy. It gives them more tools, uh, which if you're on the other side of that, sounds terrible. Um, yes. but, but from their perspective, they like it. Uh, and then in, once in, again, Lynn, you're saying it very factually and I'm freaking out over here, but yeah, yeah. I, I agree with you totally. And then in the United States and, the, and Canada, you know, I think that kind of the further West you go, I think I, I view it more as like stable coins because, you know, as you, as you head West, you get more kind of let governments less willing to operate large technical things themselves and more willing to partner with industry to operate it for them. And so I see, for example, regulations try to make stable coins more backed by, you know, kind of by by more provable reserves. Uh, you know, maybe only banks can issue them or maybe you have to have them 100% banked by cash and treasuries, for example, um, and that they can incorporate those into the system. And then those are kind of an arm's reach central bank digital currency, right? So, so for example, large banks are obviously going to comply with government regulations in the United States and Canada. Uh, and so I think that, and then they can hire technical providers uh, to kind of, you know, administer the technical details of stable coins. And so I, I see that as the most likely case, especially I, I don't, so I don't follow Canadian politics quite as closely as American politics. In the United States, we have a very tightly divided Senate uh, and House. And, you know, basically we don't really have enough consensus to do anything, um, yeah. which is good or bad, depending on what topic you're looking at. And, and we just we just copy what you guys do. That's how that's how we operate. Just so you know, that we just copy what America does. So yeah, so I I mean to the extent that's the case, I see basically just because of this political division, I think you you tend towards the, that that private public partnership where I see I see stable coins being more relevant in the West and CBDCs being more relevant in in say places like China and Europe's maybe a little bit between the two and still remains to be seen. I think you can see a spectrum of government control. 
uh, versus kind of, you know, corporate, yeah, that corporate makes sense. led. Yeah. And, and we really do just copy what the U S does. Lynn, like literally we just don't do much up here except selling our gold Canada. I don't know if you know this Canada has like 77 ounces total on its balance sheet. We sold all I did, our gold. I did, I did see that you have zero, like roughly zero. Yeah, it's rounded to yeah. zero. It's 77 yeah. ounces. So we could just hold Canada's total gold in the palm of my hand right here. Yeah. That's how much gold Canada, which the US didn't do. So that's something we did on our own. Or sometimes I think, was that like the central bank? Was that the US Fed calling the Bank of Canada saying, listen, dump some of your gold. We need to kind of get some of that on the market. Some of these are some of the <laughs> thoughts that go through my head. But um, last thing before I switch topics, just a little bit on you. The chart of truth, truth, you just tweeted about this. Can you describe what is the chart of truth? Um, and why did, I think it's just on your Twitter feed right now, actually, or about 20 minutes ago. What is the importance of it? Why are more and more people talking about it? What do you think of when you discuss it? So basically, the in the developed world, we've been in a 40-year period of disinflation, which doesn't mean deflation, but it means lower inflation compared to you know the end of the 70s. And consequently, lower and lower bond yields and, and rising, rising debt to GDP. Uh, and that goes back to the long-term debt cycle I talked about. Uh, and so a lot of back tests, a lot of assumptions about equity performance and real estate performance, all these different asset classes, you know, they've, been, they've had this 40-year tailwind of lower and lower interest rates, which when you use interest rates as discount rate, uh, basically, it let, you know, as they go down, it lets you value other assets more highly, and it makes you know financing costs cheaper. So you know you can have a higher house to income ratio. You can have a higher you know stock market to income ratio. You can as as that as yields go down, things get more and more financialized, and it's a it's a structural tailwind for assets. And if, as we hit roughly zero, some countries you hit negative, and if you just start going sideways on yields, let alone if you start going up in yields because of inflationary pressures and things like that, uh, that can be a headwind for a lot of assets. Uh, and so kind of the chart of truth is looking at the long-term U.S. Treasury rate and see that it's been in this very tight, you know, 30 to 40-year downtrend. And that every once in a while, it kind of, you know, it tests the upper bound, it tests the lower bound. It's been oddly perfect. And right now, as we've been in this inflationary environment, as bond yields around the world have pushed up, um, among other countries, the U.S. Treasury yield is poking the very top of its channel. And so a lot of people are looking at it and say, okay, we just kind of bounce off that again, or are we going to break out into a new type of structure? And so my base case is that, you know, we're going to be probably a choppy sideways period for a while in yields. You know, I don't think we're just going straight up to like 8%. Um, I think we're going to chop around for a period of time and just be under the inflation rate broadly. Um, but that has implications for all sorts of asset classes around the world that basically the, the structural bull market uh, is more challenging now going forward. Lynn, I'm going to switch gears a little bit on you. I'm curious. I read a little bit about your story on this Business Insider article. How do you get to the point where you are doing such amazing work with your analysis on equities, the macro analysis that you do? What, what gets you to this point? What can you share about your story? And, and there's one quote in here. I don't know if it's a quote, but it's something you mentioned. And you can tell me if it's accurate or not. It's from this article. And it's talking about your upbringing and your story which I found very inspirational and kind of motivating. And it kind of gives me context to understand you better, but you have this line in here. It says the fun of a trip is who you are with, 
rather than how classy you travel. Luxuries are just the sprinkles on a Sunday. And I just love that because when I reflect on my own life, it's who I hang around. You know, my trips with my family are ultimately like my happiest moments. And those moments sometimes are stuck in an airport somewhere, stuck. So like, it's not, you know, like not the most pleasurable scene, but I'm happy because of the people that I'm with. And for you to write that just shows me kind of, you have a really interesting life perspective. Um, can you talk about that a little bit? Like, how did you get to the point where you're able to talk that way? So yeah, for people that aren't familiar with my background, I, I came from relative poverty uh, and, and it was kind of a difficult environment. Uh, even even experienced peers of homelessness as a kid. Uh, and then after that, it was growing up in a trailer park. So kind of different levels of, of poverty from kind of pretty low levels of poverty to, to, you know, you know, kind of lower middle class type poverty. Luckily, it wasn't like developing country poverty, like extreme poverty. But um, and I think that influenced my views on money, my views on investing. Um, you know, it had upsides and downsides because obviously it, it gave, you know, you, you kind of get like stresses about money that I think stay with you for the rest of your life in some ways. Kind of like how if your grandparents lived through like the Great Depression or the war, they're like saving like the rubber bands because like, you know, you know what I mean? Like they're saving like everything because it's like they, they, were, they were used to scarcity. Uh, and so it kind of imprints that. But also, for example, I had to grow up quicker, uh, you know, uh, than I otherwise would have. Um, and so it, it kind of just set my set me on this on the stage for, uh, you know, kind of an interest in finance. And so even though I went into engineering, ultimately, I kept gravitating back towards finance. Uh, that was kind of always my, my key passion. Uh, and so over time, it's just been something I like to learn about. And then even other things that I learn, like, you know, for example, I have, you know, an interest in politics to an extent, but for me, it's always the quantitative aspects of politics. So how can I tie it? What has happened in the world? Why, why do things happen this way? What is, you know, what are these cycles we go through? And so I often view things through the lens of finance. Um, and so going back to that quote, you know, one of my approaches has been, you know, relative minimalism, basically that, you know, it's passion that really drives things. So, so in order to get good at something, it's you have to be passionate about it because that's what makes you put in the hours and that's what makes you kind of go through roadblocks and go through challenges. If, if you're stuck on something, if you don't care about it, you'll just be like, eh, and you'll kind of let it go. But if you care about something, you'll be like, okay, no, I, I have to figure this out. And you'll stay up late that night and you'll figure it out, right? So being passionate about finance is what kind of allows me to, to break through things. And also, you know, when I talk about say building wealth or kind of building, building, you know, just resources, it's not just about spending less or making more. It's also just about realizing that, that part of what makes life enjoyable is the experiences. So the being passionate state of flow when you're working on something or spending time with family and friends. And so my whole approach is basically like, you know, own utility and rent luxury. So, so have kind of a low baseline that's easy to manage financially. And then, you, you know, if you get very, you know, if you're comfortable, you can always go out and experience more expensive things if you'd like to, and you can use money to solve pain points. So if you look at what, what makes things, what makes people miserable, usually it's long commutes, bad mattresses, you know, there, there's, there's like pain points you can fix with money. And whereas like money can't buy happiness, it, it can solve problems, but it can't buy happiness. So if, if you kind of look at how, the, if you analyze how you think, so what are, what are your pain points? And also you can look at studies. You can say, okay, what, what is, 
what are the leading contributors to misery and how do I make sure I avoid those? And the, so the combination of looking at that broad statistical scale and your own life, I, I think that there are ways to use money wisely. So ways to use it poorly would be, for example, to show off, to try to keep up with the neighbors, to just do what everyone else is doing, uh, to get on a constant treadmill of consumption uh, and versus just, okay, what do I actually want in life? What problems do I want to solve in life? And go from there. And, and basically, I think that, you know, if someone focuses on passion, they're going to make more money usually. Um, and they also will spend less because, you know, instead of trying to fill a hole by, you know, buying a second sports car, the, you know, they want to spend their time doing what they like. And that, that could either be cheap or could make the money. When you focused on, yeah, I, I, a couple of thoughts come to mind, I guess. First is that I wonder if you were gravitating back to finance because of the peace of mind you would get by understanding finance and being able to have some savings so that you could kind of, you know, I think you mentioned in that article that once you have some savings in your life or some kind of net worth where maybe you can survive six months without working, maybe a year, maybe a year and a half or two years, you kind of get that peace of mind. So I wonder if you were just gravitating back to finance to, to capture that peace of mind that maybe you didn't have when you were younger. Definitely. Um, Cause yeah, I went through that period of relative chaos. And then, so when I, when I stabilized, which was in a trailer park, I became a pretty heavy saver. So for example, when I got birthday gifts or like, you know, holiday gifts, um, I would save it. Uh, and so I started investing in precious metals when I was like eight or something like that. So I, I, I had dollars, <laughs> wow. I had yeah. little silver coins. And back then it was cheap, right? You can get, it was super cheap. And so I had, I had dollars, I had little silver coins. I had a couple little, uh, you know, uh, half ounce gold coins. And that was like my initial treasury. And so having savings felt good. And then when oh, I went, wow. when I went to college, I went through a period where I had a negative net worth because I had, I had savings, but then I had all these student loans and that was this constant stress of just like, okay, I have this negative net worth. I yeah. have to go make income now. Uh, and so, you know, there's the, there's that kind of like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, or there's also like your will and your ability to think long-term is partially influenced by how stressed you are in the near term. And so money again is a tool there where if you have savings and investments and cash flows and things like that that are passive it allows you in some ways to think longer term as long as you don't let those things rule you right so if you get more money and then you have a constant urge to get even more money and mm. you, you you constantly buy things that's that's a trap that people fall into where the more money they make they, they it's still like never enough versus if you if you continue to live lightly build up your resources, then you have this long runway of savings and investments and cash flows. It allows you to take a step back and think, okay, how do I want to shape my life? How do I want to help others? How, you know, so you get off of that kind of three to six month to year long thinking, mm -hmm. and you can, you can think in five year increments because you have more of that freedom. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's so important. What you just said, because I think so many people in North America are maybe on that treadmill that they can't think beyond three to six months. And they're missing some of these big trends that you discuss that will catch them off guard 10 years from now. You know, in one of your reports, how you talk about, I think in the 1940s, that after the 10 year cycle there, consumer goods were up like 90% in value. I think that was the stat that you put out there. And I, part of me fears that, wow, 10 years from now, every people think things are expensive now, but perhaps they're going to be 90% more expensive at the end of this decade, and it's going to catch so many people off guard, but you can't really blame anyone because they're worried about the three to six months and they're not worried about 10 years from now. 
right? So it's this constant kind of kind of kind of battle. Um, when you said focus on your passion, how do you think you were able to take your passion and monetize it? Did you study like sales and marketing? Did you study putting together a website and how to get you know traffic to the website? How did you go from that passion to to now doing what you're doing? Was that an extra skill set that you had to develop, or did you just fall into it? The short answer is yes. So so the early, part of it is luck because my passion happens to be investing and and just studying global finance, which is just naturally a more lucrative field of inquiry than you know if I was interested sure, yeah. in, in art, for example. Now, but that doesn't mean that people can't you know you you can monetize just about anything. Uh, it's just that some are some some are more fric- they have more frictions than others that just you know, incline towards higher margins or or more saleability. Um, but to answer your question, I did have to develop a, a semblance of marketing, and my personality is very non-marketing focused, right? So I'm an introvert. I don't like hard sales, um, and so I I studied you know content marketing, right? How how to you know say you never actually like. Basically, yeah, I studied, okay, how to build an email list, how to, how to do search engine optimization. That was kind of my early, you know, I had, a, I had a small blog before I started this one, and it was just like an anonymous thing where I just kind of posted stock analysis. It was kind of learning along the way, and I, I learned search engine optimization and building an email list and things like that um, and how to make a product and sell a product. And that was kind of my, my trial, my, my long-term multi-year learning experience. So when I started Lynn Alden uh, Investment Strategy, I already knew what I was doing in that regard. And I still had to learn new things like how to manage social media and things like that. And as a result, I, I've never, you know, I never spent a dime on marketing. I never, I don't have any of those like sales pages about like hard sales. I never really, I, I never post a tweet asking anyone to buy anything. It's purely that really super soft sales are just okay, let me just provide a lot of value because I in- inherently enjoy what I'm doing. I'm not, you know, you know, if my revenue is cut in half tomorrow, I would still be doing it, right? It's, it's not for the money specifically, even though obviously you need to make a living, but it's not for the money. It's because I enjoy doing it. And as a result, it just kind of works out better than you expect. So, so my focus is on trying to do good content, trying to keep people coming back with, you know, email lists and things like that. And then never hard selling them, just kind of keep providing value and then saying, hey, I have this other thing if you want to buy it, but it's up to you. Uh, and so it's partially about finding a marketing strategy that fits with your personality and your style. Yeah, totally. Yeah, and, and it works. In that same article, you mentioned this. Um, it says you, you have to get all of your financial house in order, not just a part of it. Do you remember that part of that article? Can you talk about that point? I remember it roughly. Basically... So there's saving. Uh, well, there's one is making a high enough income because that that's one of the hardest parts is that people just don't make enough income over their basic needs to to save a difference. So one is figuring out how to make more money or enough money to to have both your lifestyle met and savings. That's one. Uh, and then two, um, controlling the expense side. Um, and then three is investing. And a lot of people figure out one or two of those. Uh, whereas wealth creation happens when you get all three right. And I use the example of my father where he he totally nailed the first two, where he made enough money. He he was very responsible with his expenses. He had like a perfect credit score. He like was, you know, he had savings, um, but he, he didn't understand investing at all. 
and didn't trust the stock market, didn't know how to invest. And so after decades and decades and decades, he just he, he never grew his wealth. It was always just kind of this this linear thing. Yeah, got it. And I apologize for noise. There's some construction. Uh, no, no, that's right okay. There. That's okay. Yeah, I think that's a that's an important point. Um, what, what I want to ask you is for anyone listening to this who maybe maybe they're thinking about you know they have a rental property, they have some money in the stock a stock market, but they don't really pay attention to how they should position themselves or invest for the next ten years. What would be like the simplest piece of advice? Would it be getting more education? you know, just investing in your own knowledge and education, or would it be a specific investment to think of? What would you say to someone listening to this, maybe driving in their car, they're thinking about getting their first rental property, if they can save up for it, maybe they have something in the stock market. What would be their next move for the next 10 years? Yeah, I think one is make sure you're able to get incomes doing things you like to do. That's number one. And that could either be concentrating on a profession that that earns well or diversifying. You can you can have a day job and you can have a side hustle. So there are different ways to do it depending on, on what, how you want to approach it. And then another uh, uh, aspect of that is I think having a basic understanding of global macro. And that sounds intimidating, but you know, for example, I try to put it in plain English, and that that's been been part of why the website's been successful. Is I try to take complex subjects and just kind of teach it like I would at a high school level, and and I learned along the way doing that. Uh, and it's funny because I even get like institutional investment managers that say, I like your article <laughs> because it's in plain yeah, English. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, it makes I, sense. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And the reason I say that, so there, there's like quotes from like Warren Buffett and others and like, or like Peter Lynch that say like, you know, you know, any, any second I spent on macro was too much. Um, but that's often because they were in this, like, you know, this period of mm. kind of, one, American exceptionalism, and two, structurally lower and lower and lower interest rates. So as it just keeps yeah. going up and you're like, well, why would I care about macros? The stock Stocks go up, real estate goes up, everything goes up. So as long as you stick to a couple of developed markets, things just go up all the time. What's the, why would you spend yeah. any time on global macro? And the, the, the catch there, and I think part of what caught people off guard this, these past couple of years, uh, you know, aside from obvious kind of like extreme events, is that they just weren't students of history. And I do think that, you know, both financially, socially, politically, it's important to be a student of history to a degree, right? So not everyone has time to be, you know, one of the same, uh, you know, an expert in history. But I think global macro and history are in some ways kind of the same thing. And so that's why even if you're not super into finance, it's, it's, it's worth understanding. So I think it's worth, the, you know, every person understanding the long-term debt cycle, uh, credit cycles, uh, you know, kind of what money is shifting, you know, what is a global reserve? Like, you know, when, when sovereign countries have foreign reserves, what does that mean? I think those things are worth knowing because these are things that underpin what we consider money and how markets work and how, you know, geopolitics work and how domestic politics work. It's all interlinked uh, and how kind of social movements change and how they can be periods of extremes on the right or the left. And so, it all ties together. And so I, you know, one of my pieces of advice would be to understand, at least on the basic level, global macro, because I think we're in a decade where global macro matters. Yeah, it gives you context for what's going on. Um, Lynn, I just want to give everybody the best place to, to find you. 
And I want to thank you. Um, I've said this before to you. I just really want to thank you for the work that you're doing. We share your work. The charts that you put together are just incredible for giving people an illustration of, you know, what is going on in the world. I love the, the stuff that you're doing. So sometimes I think when you're writing content and blog posts, you don't get that feedback. I just want you to know there's a whole bunch of us that you're impacting with your work. So thank you for what you're doing. Keep doing it. I consider myself an introvert uh, as well. Um, I wish I could break things down as well as you do. So I, it's really appreciated. Just thank you for that. And if for anyone listening, Lynn's website is lynnalden.com. We'll put it in the show notes. We subscribe to her free newsletter, which is amazing. Like your free newsletter, Lynn, has more good analysis in it than stuff, other stuff that we pay for. It's, it's amazing. We also pay for your premium level stuff, which is also amazing. But if you're listening to this and you want some global macro context, Lynn's newsletters are definitely a place to go. And if you're active on Twitter, Lynn is on Twitter at Lynn Alden Contact. So it's at Lynn Alden Contact. We'll put links to that in the show notes for this as well. Um, yeah, and that's it, Lynn. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you sharing all this stuff. I appreciate that. One thing I'll, I'll leave you with, uh, I guess, on an optimistic note, is that you know, in high school, my worst subject was English. I hated English. I was I like math and science, and I was terrible at English and writing. Um, and just from just from grinding at it for like a decade, um, I got decent at it. Right. So so I I still get emails from the grammar police about you know my grammar is never perfect. I'm I'm by no means an English major, um, but I, you know, by looking at some basic, basic, you know, like tutorials on how to structure online articles and then ignoring half the advice, because most of them said write short articles. And I was like, well, I'm not going to do that. So, but like, no, you definitely write, don't do that. Your what is money article, which is amazing, by the way, I have it saved on one of my tabs. I'm like halfway through it. I was trying to get through it before today, but I'm like, wow, I cannot get through this thing. It's a, it's excellent by the way, but you do not write short articles. No. Yeah. It's basically a book. Basically, yeah. So I, I ignore the advice that I didn't want to follow, but basically by looking at some tips and then just practicing and getting feedback and keep practicing, I, I reached a point where I could, for whatever reason, people like to read it, right? And so it's, it's not something I inherently had a talent in at all. And so if you, if you keep working at something and you, and you kind of, you know, work hard, but also work smart. So look up and say, okay, well, you know, go back and be self-reflective and say, okay, what am I doing right? What am I doing wrong? You can improve over time. So I, I would just leave it at that, that if people read my writing and they, 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 they do like it, just know that I, I, I used to hate writing, right? And so it's just something you can, you can work at over time. I think I've noticed that about you. You will do things that really test you. I don't know if you're still practicing jujitsu at all, but it also in your article, you threw yourself in the middle of Argentina, I think for three weeks without knowing anyone or, or the language. So you seem, and writing wasn't your skill set, but you threw yourself into it. And I think that's just kind of the way to get through life. You kind of have to suffer a little bit. Like you have to suffer, like put yourself in the jujitsu class, put yourself in the middle of Argentina. And you seem to just relentlessly do that, Lynn. You just put yourself in the middle of big topics like macro. You know, I'm going to write about macro. I'll write these long blog posts about them until you're good at them, and which you are. So it's cool to see because I just believe in your strategy a lot. So I appreciate yeah, that. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Lynn. Thanks. Talk again soon. Bye. Hey, everyone. Hopefully you enjoyed that show with Lynn Alden. Her website is lynnalden.com. You can get onto her free newsletter right on the main page. If you go to lynnalden.com, Lynn is L-Y-N. Alden is A-L-D-E-N. So lynnalden.com. Or you can follow her on Twitter at lynnaldencontact. That's her handle at 
Lynn Alden contact. And if you are listening to this and you want some real estate, real estate, real estate, real estate specific information for this area, you can get the latest copy of our 2022 population explosion report at rockstarinnercircle.com forward slash reports. That's rockstarinnercircle.com forward slash reports. That's it for this time. Until next time, your life, your terms.